0: Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us. You might be at Ajax or Pickering or Port Perry, Bowmanville, somewhere online. You might be listening this week on demand or months or years from now. No matter who you are, where you're from, welcome back or welcome for the first time. We're in the book of Romans still, just starting this journey together. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to pull it out to Romans chapter 2. If not, it's going to be on the screens where you are. A long time ago, in a land far, far away there was a very, very, very famous ship called the Queen Mary. At that time in history, it was the largest ship ever to cross uh, oceans when it was launched in 1936. After four decades of service and also being used during the Second World War, I actually believe my grandfather might have come back on the ship after the war, she was retired. And actually, she was sent all the way to the other side of the continent, to California, to Long Beach, where she basically was anchored And then she was going to be made into a hotel. Now, they needed to convert her from a working ship into a hotel and restaurant. And there were three massive smokestacks. Can you imagine those? They're sort of, you know, those ones that are on the top of all the big ships we even see today. And they took them off because they wanted to scrape them down, repaint them, and then put them back up. When they took all three massive smokestacks off this beautiful ancient old ship and put it on the uh, off the ship and put them basically on the dock, they crumbled, right, like dust in front of people's eyes. People were totally shocked. And they discovered that nothing was left of the three-quarter-inch steel plate in each one of the stacks. Everything that remained was the 30 coats of paint that had actually been painted on again and again. And inside, this, this is wild to believe, inside, no steel was left for years. And so when they took them off and put them down, rust had wiped out all the steel and the paint collapsed. Beautiful on the outside. Still sort of functioning, but not really. Total destruction. That is a brilliant image of actually the human condition as we walk through Romans 2. I don't know if you were with us, Last week, but it's really important that you try to listen to every single week because it's sort of like Lego. One week after the other, after the other is building together. Last week was a really tough, really difficult, really wild conversation. And basically, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, gives like a universal indictment of the human family. And Paul simply said, listen, we, uh, we I'm going to violate everything you hold dear as a human. He announced the most difficult news, that the wrath of God is real and it's upon anyone who's touched, been touched by, participated in, or lives in sin. So the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, says all of us as humans, the best of us, the worst of us, the good, the bad, the religious, the non-religious, men, women, children, all of us are under the present wrath of God. In this moment, Paul says, yes, the good news of God, the righteousness of God has been revealed, but so is the wrath of God. It's like two sides of one coin. And yet, even as Christians, I know not all of us are listening today, but for we who are Christians, when we hear God's view of the human condition, which of course should define reality for us, many, if not most, don't accept God's assessment of us. I love when one person wrote this. It's very easy sometimes to get a non-Christian or even a Christian to admit we're messed up or sinners. It is almost impossible to get humans to realize the gravity of sin. I mean, is this not the statements we say all the time? We see it on Instagram, we see it on Twitter, we say it all the time, we see it in our families. They roll around in our minds all the time. Well, everyone else is doing it, or nobody's perfect, or I'm not that bad, and oh yeah, but we're evolving, and we know better, and we're on the right side of history, and John, come on, I'm not Hitler or Charles Manson, I mean, I'm no Mother Teresa, I suppose, but I'm a good person somewhere in between. I mean, history is full of these ideas. Even great thinkers and philosophers coined phrases like, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Or God will forgive, it's his trade. See, at the heart of all those statements that we've said, believed, or acted upon, what we're really saying to ourselves or others or God is, well, we're human. And we're obligated to sin. No, we can't help it. And God, you're love, so you're obligated to forgive us. And the truth is, for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, believer or not, we all know we've messed up. But for the vast majority of human beings, we go, yeah, yeah, I've messed up. But overall, I'm a pretty good person. And that's why our ongoing conversation gets hazy. It's difficult to talk about sin or wrath or salvation when you don't see yourself as heaven does. I love when one person said this. There's a broad middle category containing the masses of somewhat good yet somewhat bad people, and others yet to be determined. And that's where we usually tend to naturally place ourselves, isn't it? And within that category of basically good and sometimes bad, we naturally rank other people by our view of of observable goodness. Some are better than others, clearly. Now, when you do that, when I do that, when we do that, who do you think the measuring rod is? Well, if you're honest, it's you. I think that person's better, I think that person's worse. The person says, you know, when you're driving on the freeway, the people who go slower, when you want to go faster, are jerks and idiots, and whoever drives faster than you, they're a menace to society. And when you say, well, do you think you're going to go to heaven or hell? People say, well, I'm not perfect, but I've never killed anyone, so I suppose I'm a pretty good person. Now, Paul turns his gaze from basically 2,000 years ago, writing about the pagan Roman world, but actually humanity in general, And he focuses now on one group, the religious Jewish community of his own day. Now, never forget who Paul was. For much of his life, he was the best, the brightest, the most promising, the most religious of his own community until he met Jesus. 22 years later, he's speaking and writing, of course, the Gospel of Romans or the Book of Romans. And he's now writing to his own family, his own people. And they need to know that, like the rest of the world, they're under the wrath of God, and they think they're not under the wrath of God, and they think they're fine, and they're not. See, they would have listened to last week's sermon and shouted a huge amen. We're not doing that idle stuff, and we're sexually obeying God, and we know God, and we've got God's law, and we're chosen, and a lot of the world hates God or is ignorant of God, but we actually know him, so I suppose most people are on their way to hell, but not us, and actually Paul comes along and goes, Whoa. Well, actually, you're in a lot more trouble than you think. Recounting the mindset of Paul's own community, I love when one person said this. We're about to see the perfection of God's judgment in that even the most religious people on earth don't fool God. Just as millions and millions, maybe billions of religious moralizers today think they're going to get by because they're good people and God must certainly forgive them, thousands of Jew, uh, Jewish people in the Jewish nation during Jesus' time, well, they thought the same way, but actually they used to take it one step farther. They actually used to teach and believe they would not be judged, but everyone else would be. There was a common tradition around the time of Jesus that claimed that Abraham himself would sit at the gate of hell to keep all Jews out, regardless of their deeds. Trifo, the the Jew, alleged (coughs) to say these words, "...they who are the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh," so ethnically Jewish, "...shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God," will share in God's eternal kingdom. See, many Jews believe that they were immune from God's wrath because they were Jews. So we can imagine, the person writes, how a moralizing Jew would read the condemnation of the pagan world in Romans 1 and say, go get them, God, and amen, God, and that's so right, God, and about time you take out the rest of the world. The self-righteous Jew would never dream that they're under the same condemnation as the Roman neighbor because they were actually blind to their own condition. And so to read chapter two, things get a lot closer to home. Paul's saying, <clears throat> you think you're okay. You think you're better. You think you're more connected. You think you're more spiritual because you're deeply religious. Well, you're not okay. Paul is saying to the most observant, most religious, most moral, the very careful people in and around his life, you're also guilty of suppressing the truth. Like the pagan world, you are without excuse, but it's actually worse for you. Why? Because actually you know more than them. Romans chapter 2 verse 1. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now they would cry, that's not fair, and that's not true, and we don't steal, and we don't commit adultery, and we worship the one true living God. But see, of course, we know that the living God, the true living God, doesn't just look at actions. He looks at thought and motive. I mean, this is what Jesus started unpacking in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's one example when he talked about adultery in Matthew 5.27. You've heard it said in the Old Testament, Jesus says, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Who among us listening or watching online, who among us here at Sanctus have not in emotion, in thought, maybe even in deed, committed adultery? If you're married, you have. According to Jesus' standard, and that's only one of the Ten Commandments, And if you break one of God's law, you actually break all of God's law. Because remember, the law actually comes from God Himself. And when you actually break God's law, you just don't trespass, trespass to places you're not allowed to go. You actually assault the one who actually gave the law because it's His character. Assault the law, break the law, assault the giver of the law. Paul keeps going, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God's wrath is upon those who think they even represent God, and they know God, and they've even got his book. Oh, and it's truth, by the way, it's fact. Another wrote with almost biting insight, the secret hope of the hypocrite is that God will somehow judge them by a standard lower than the perfect truth and righteousness of God. They they know enough to recognize the wickedness of the human heart, but they hope vainly that God will judge them in in the same superficial way that most others judge. Paul says in verse 3, So when you, a mere person, pass judgment on all these pagans, and yet you do the same things as a Jew, you think you're going to escape God's judgment? So you walk around and you see how screwed up the world is and how much sin there is in the world. And as a religious Jew, you, you think, well, buy my works and buy my heritage because I've got my, my Jewish study Bible and I've been circumcised. And No. I love how Eugene Peterson put this in the message. You didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and from coming down on you hard. Or did you think that because he's a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into radical life change. Writing on the psychology of religious people who think they're better off because of what they do for God, let alone knowing what God has done for them, one wrote, The self-righteous moralizer... Is not only blind, but judgmental to the extreme. There is no one more censorious than a person like that. Hell will be filled with judgmental, goody-goody people. Paul at this moment has just said, no matter how many religious acts you've done, no matter what you have done, no matter your ethnicity or religious background or your spiritual pedigree, None of it can cover the sin you have been involved in, you are involved in, or will be involved in. It's like right here, Paul almost brings down the smackdown. He throws down the gauntlet when he says in verse 4, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? See, the difficult news that we're hearing should be leading human beings, especially religious human beings, actually to repentance, but actually it's not. And he uses three words, so easily said, so easily preached, so easily read uh, together in a group, but so missed. Kindness, tolerance, patience. What does that mean here? Well, God is kind. Kindness just means the benefits of God, like food and existence and life and sunshine, like just he's kind, we exist. But then... He goes a step further. God is not only kind, he's tolerant. Now this is the word forbearance, and it actually means something very specific. It means to hold back. It was used when there was a truce between warring parties. In other words, what Paul is saying is God is kind because he lets us exist and God is tolerant towards us. There is a temporary truce between God and humanity and God has given this truce to give space to meet him through Jesus and find mercy. But there is an end to the truce coming. Oh, and then there's patience. And this word patience specifically comes from an idea of a powerful ruler who decides because he is kind, who in a voluntary way withheld wrath on an enemy or does not actually commit just punishment on a criminal. One person said, patience here is the timeline of tolerance and kindness. So God is saying, I want everybody to catch this, God is, God is kind to us, Paul says, and God is tolerant and God is patient, and all of this should be leading, no matter who you are, to a place of repentance, should be moving you to meet God, to be saved, to be changed, to be liberated. Now, the word repentance is a really churchy word, and we say it a lot, but what, is the, like, what does that really mean? I love when one person said this, the purpose of the kindness of God is not to excuse people of their sin, but to convict them of it and lead them to repentance. Repentance has the basic meaning of changing one's mind about something. Now in the moral or spiritual realm, it refers to changing one's mind about what is sin. From loving that thing to renouncing that thing. And turning to God for forgiveness. Repentance is actually changing your mind about a thing that you love or think is okay. And God says it's not okay. And you choose to agree with God and say now it is that thing called sin. And actually though I might want to do it or I struggle with it. I still will say no or try to say no to it because I now love God more. Now before you again zone out or disconnect or get angry. Remember Paul is writing to his own family. The religious Jews. And the words he's choosing here really would hit home with this crowd. It gets back to how they viewed the world, how they lived their whole life, how he lived his whole life. We must remember one road. The Jewish assumption of superiority over non-Jews wasn't ego. It wasn't personal boasting. We're so amazing. You're so terrible. Out of all the nations of the earth, they thought, God had chosen the Jews, Israel to be his people. Surely the Jews reason, as God's chosen people, they're immune from God's judgment. His tolerance and his kindness will always cause him, here it is, to overlook their sin. To overlook, to not deal with, to ignore their sin. And what Paul is saying here is so radical and so powerful. It would be like all of us, if you're a Christian, finding out that everything you thought about us as a Christian, about the world, about God, about faith, wasn't completely wrong, but was misdirected, and you were still under judgment. That's what's happening to Paul's original audience here. They had the right beginning and ended up in the wrong place. And Paul is saying to this highly offended, now highly insulted crowd, that God's wrath and judgment is actually fair, just, and true, and it's upon all of them. And then Paul says, because, but because of your stubbornness... <laughs> And your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Stubbornness comes from the idea of your own heart. You know, physically, if you're not careful, uh, you can actually have your arteries clogged or hardened, which leads to a heart attack, heart disease, or death. This is the same word. He said, you basically, your heart, your heart spiritually as a religious Jew has become hardened and clogged and it's leading to your death. Paul says you are you're trusting in you, not in God for your salvation. You're trusting in you and what you've got and what you've been given, not the person who's given them. And the hardness of your heart reveals your true condition. You presume on God's kindness. You presume on God's forbearance. You presume on God's patience. But really, actually, you're storing up wrath like an ever-growing debt at the bank, which is compounding every single second. You are storing up wrath. You're digging your own hole. And you actually are not calling the hole a hole at all. You say, oh, it's a beautiful house. No, you're just like that smokestack. You've got 30 beautiful paint, uh, 30 coats of paint that are beautiful. But inside, there's nothing left. And then he says, God will give each person, verse 6, according to what they have done. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, they will receive eternal life. For those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be anger and and wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew and then the non-Jew. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew and then the (laughs) non-Jew. Now, if you misread this, it almost sounds like Paul is saying, be really good and then you get eternal life. Be really bad and you go to hell. But actually, you would miss what Paul's saying and actually you'd end up in the place Paul is trying to get you away from. Remember, Paul is slowly building a picture for us to see. Uh, Douglas Moo, who's a famous New Testament scholar, said we must remember that Paul is in the process at this moment of building a case. And here's the summary of it. Salvation for both Jews and non-Jews is available only by doing good. The power of sin prevents Jews and non-Jews from doing good perfectly and consistently. Therefore, no one can be saved By doing good. Therefore, verse, it gets to chapter 10 later, you have to trust in Jesus and his work alone in faith or through faith because only faith in Jesus, who obeyed all of the law perfectly, brings salvation. See, that's what Paul is working out. So, with that understanding, (coughs) Paul shatters everything he was taught growing up, everything he was taught before. And he actually smashes all the hope we as human beings have called upon since the beginning of time. When he says these next few little words. For God does not show favoritism. For God, (laughs) oh boy, does not show favoritism. Our intelligence, nope. What about our position? Not going to help. What about my many acts of kindness? Not going to help. My giving to charity? Not actually helpful here. What about how deeply religious I am? Not helpful. But I'm sin- I'm so sincere. Doesn't matter. I- I'm a church member. I, I went to Mecca. I-, I actually was at the Wailing Wall. Do you know how much I've spent in meditation? My family is Christians. I'm a spiritual person. I give up so much for others. I, I give to the United-, United Way and the World Animal Fund. No, I serve the homeless. I sponsor kids through World Vision none of it will move God in relation to salvation. Wealth? No. Power? No. Race? Color? Nationality? Heritage? Philosophy? Education? Religiosity? Looks? Fighting for justice? Serving the poor? Fill in the blank. It will count for nothing when it comes to dealing with the issue of our salvation. Jew? Not Jew. Right believing? Wrong believing? The measuring rod is the same for all of us. It's like in this moment Paul moves in for the kill. He brings home this most needed but terrible, uncomfortable truth. And he does this by talking about the law of God in two forms. All who sin, verse 12, apart from the law will perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Jews and non-Jews are not in the same situation at the beginning, but they end up in the same place in the end. Now when Paul says the law here, What he means is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then those things are summarized best by the Ten Commandments. Now the question is, why in the world can the law not protect a religious, all-in Jew, a sincere Jew? And the answer is verse 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared Righteous, correct, in good standing. In other words, Paul says, you have to keep God's law perfectly and consistently because he is consistently perfect. You can never break one law. Never steal, never lie, never commit adultery, never covet, never dishonor your mom and dad, never actually replace God with an idol in your heart or in real life. If you do so, as we found out, you break one law, you break all the law. See, the role of God's law isn't just to reflect, out, reflect us who God is, his beauty, his consistency. There's no shadow in him, right? All, it's deeper than that. It's also to show us how lost we are and drive us to a point of salvation. And he says to his own family, so yeah, we've got the Ten Commandments, and we're religious Jews, and we've got, we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but do we obey God perfectly? No. And then they say, yeah, but what about the rest of the screwed up pagan world? And he goes, oh, indeed. When non-Jews who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bear witness, their thoughts now accusing, now even defend them. So here's, here's the summary. Paul says, look, to you, my family, fellow Jews, just as much as non-Jews, we're all sinful. We all need a Savior. We all need good news from somewhere else. Because the law, whether innate through nature in God's thumbprint or written and revealed, cannot protect us from judgment because all of us keep breaking them. Those versions of the law both expose and condemn us in the end. I love what Blaise Pascal once wrote. The law demands what it cannot give. Grace gives all it demands. Let me say it again. The law demands what it cannot give. Grace gives all it demands. The gospel provides the only way back to God. Nothing or nobody else but Jesus can do this because Jesus is the only one who has consistently obeyed the law, never broken relationship with the Father, and has the purity to stand in the gap and take the stuff we've done. And Paul says, by the way, this is so real, everyone. This is so real. I know it doesn't feel real, but it's so real. And by the way, there is a time where all this wrath that's being stored up will sort of like come together in one moment called Judgment Day. This will take place on the day when God will judge people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. I mean, we talked about this in our Eternity series. If you weren't with us, go back and listen to that. Heaven and hell and the new heavens and new earth and judgment. Paul wrote this earlier to another church, When he wrote in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The greatest people on earth and the smallest people on earth. Those with power, those without power. Those who were known and acknowledged and those who were ignored. Every person in history, the unknown and unknown, Great writers and generals and poets and actors and great thinkers and politicians and the great religious leaders and kings and queens and the billions upon billions of normal unknown people of history all will stand before God and hear the judgment of Christ in resurrected bodies and we will have to listen to what he says. Can you just sit with that for a moment? On that day there will be no place to hide. There's no amount of talk. If you're a lawyer, a really ex- exceptional orator, you can't talk your way out of this one. It doesn't matter how rich you are. You could be richer than Jeff Bezos. Money, power, stuff on Judgment Day, not even present. You can't remove this coming act. You can't con God. You can't silence God. You can't shut God up and you can't seduce him. You can't avoid God. You can't in that moment call on friends and family. You won't be able to rely on your looks or your achievements. Nothing. There will be a day where God just declares the truth. See, God is giving us the other side of the good news for one reason. He wants you to know how much trouble you're in if you don't think you're in trouble or if you know you're in trouble to clarify why you're in trouble. See, you'll never know you need a Savior until you know you need saving. And like I shared last week, another person wrote this, God's abandonment is not the same as rejection. It's the first step in seeing salvation. See, Paul says every human being is under the wrath of God now. If you trust in what you do, what you have, whether, again, like I said last week, whether you're a hardcore secular humanist or deeply religious or spiritual, you're at the center of the saving process. You're in the center of making the better thing. And you're under God's wrath because you're still trusting in you. I violated God's law, and so have you. We've done it both violating the law of nature and, of course, God's revealed law the problem is most of us don't really think we're helpless sinners we're just like a decent person who's had a bad day and just needs some time off and we'll be better we don't think that we're a broken down car that there's nothing left in and there's no engine in we just think that we're you know we need to go to the mechanic for a bit and we'll be fine we don't think we're spiritually dead we just think we have a little bit of a cold And God comes along and says, no, 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 there's no engine in the car. You are spiritually dead. You don't need a tune-up. You need a brand new car. It was C.S. Lewis, that really famous atheist who became a Christian, who wrote all those amazing children's books and also wrote all these other books on the faith of Christianity. He, He brilliantly, he said, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without any signposts. God, in this moment, through his scriptures, is raising a huge stop sign. A huge stop sign. And crying out, stop. You're in trouble. You need saving. You need a gospel that is not found within you or around you. Everything that you trust in will not take care of the ultimate problem of sin, death, rebellion, brokenness, separation from God. There is no double standard. The question is, will you cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What will you do with God? With his son, Jesus? With his offering? What will you do with what he says about you? Now, I know lots and lots and lots of us watching this right now have Christian history. Many of us grew up in Christian homes, just like Paul's audience. Many of them grew up in faithful Jewish homes. So I want you to listen carefully. If you call yourself a Christian and you've never personally repented over your sin, you prayed a prayer years ago, but there's no life change, you're probably actually not a Christian don't presume on grace until you personally accept it through repentance and faith. God's kindness leads towards repentance, changing one's mind and turning in a different direction. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. If you have not personally said, I am a sinner, Lord, I have sinned against you, and I actually am admitting that, and I need Jesus' work to cover me personally, then you're just relying on family faith. Not personal faith. Family faith may open the door, but personal faith is the thing that crosses you over and allows you to encounter Christ. Now, some of you have come from traditions where every single Friday you're running to an altar to make sure that you're saved again. Or maybe you come from the tradition that you have to always go to confession, you're always afraid. No, no, I'm not asking you to do that. Listen, if you're deeply struggling, it's probably a good sign that actually you are in the faith because dead things don't struggle. I'm talking about people who say, well, I'm just Christian and it doesn't matter what I do and how I live because, you know, I'm just Christian. No, 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 that's not general repentance. If you're struggling and trying to obey, that is a sign. You don't have to keep getting saved. Once called, saved, in, that's taken place. See the difference? If you are a real follower of Jesus, what is God saying to you, to us? Well, I might say it's obvious, but I don't know. Reading Romans chapter 1 and half of chapter 2 so far should really lead Christians to be profoundly thankful. Thankful that he chose us, chapter 1. Thankful that he saved us, chapter 1. Thankful that he loves us, that he freed us from our own works, that he's freed us from, from the burden of trying to buy or prove ourselves to meet his standard of love or holiness. See, when you see the gravity of sin, the real result should be thankfulness. And thankfulness should become stronger and stronger. The less sinful you think you are, the less thankful you become. This is not saying, oh, I'm crap, I'm garbage, I'm a worm. No, 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 no. This is not a sitting in guilt. But the more you reflect on the reality of hell, the reality of the just wrath of God, when you begin to understand how serious our sin is, how big the deception is, and the list goes on and on, you should become more and more astonished. We should become more and more astonished by the love of God that he would take, deal, and clean that all away. What's the fruit of a thankful heart? Well, the more thankful you become and the more you realize what you've been saved from, the less proud, less arrogant, less ruthless, less uncaring you'd probably become. And you'd have this growing tendency towards mercy versus judgment because you couldn't believe someone did that for you. You would have to do that for someone else. When's the last time... You just said, Lord, thank you for saving me from all of this stuff, my own stuff, and also what was upon me. You know, like I said last week, in the last few weeks, this is a real interesting time for sanctists in every church around the globe, especially in the West. It's like the, so much burned down, and now we're rebuilding. And of course, the basic building blocks of church in any generation is Acts chapter 2. That actually is what a common, faithful, vibrant church is. But there is a connection to thankfulness and vibrancy. I love what Greg Rochelle from Life Church once said when he summarized what good churches should look like. He said, Churches should look this way a church should preach boldly, love radically, serve sacrificially, and give extravagantly. Love radically, serve sacrificially, give uh, extravagantly, preach boldly. Well, listen. Churches that are thankful... Might produce this a thank, Thankful people preach boldly Because they know what they've been saved from And they want others Thankful people would be more loving In a radical way Because they know how much they've been loved Actually a, a thankful people Would begin to serve sacrificially Because they've been served so much and, and of course A thankful people would give So extravagantly Because they've been given so much Let me put it like this If over If over COVID In the last two and a half years, you've stopped being bold in your preaching. Your love is dimmed. You don't even serve anymore out of your spiritual gifts. You don't even serve in the local church and to the world, though it's a command of God. And giving, let alone giving extravagantly, serving that costs you. Well, you can measure the level of your thankfulness based on preaching boldly, loving radically, serving sacrificially, and giving extravagantly. Thankfulness is the engine that will actually help us rebuild this church in this resurrection moment. But thankfulness will never take place until you see how much we've been saved from. So Lord, we end like this. Doing a new thing, new season, new space, new place. But actually, your word is relevant in every time. So I pray for everyone listening right now from all sorts of backgrounds, more secular and atheistic or agnostic, those who are spiritual, those who are from other faiths, those who are Christian in name only. And I pray, Father and Son, you'd send the Holy Spirit to reveal the extent of of sin, the extent of the real wrath that is upon them, the extent of what is coming, and then show them, Holy Spirit, the incredible work, the person of Jesus. And just may all sorts of people become followers. May many be saved, even as I'm praying right now. I pray for all of us as Christians, the same in a different way. Holy Spirit, would you show us what we have been saved from? This is how we get our first love back. Grow an incredible thankfulness that we've lost. And then we pray, in this rebuilding time, help our church to preach boldly, love radically, begin to serve sacrificially, and start giving extravagantly again. Would you grow the thankfulness, and as the thankfulness grows, may it begin to rebuild and resurrect the house. This is what we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.